0: Welcome to the app Aben podcast, episode 94, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm Stu. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about monitoring and distributed tracing. We also talk about eBPF and Terragrunt.
1: And we also have a few podcast recommendations. So without further ado, let's get on with the show.
0: Hello, we're back again for another episode. John's not here; he's probably not going to come for a couple of uh, more episodes. Um, he's just got a new job, and he's just going to be focusing on that for a bit. So, how's everyone been? I think both of you, or some of you, got some new jobs, haven't you? I think.
2: I mean, yeah, it was it was six months ago, but we've not done that many podcasts <laughs> since then. So, yeah, yes, I um, I'm, I'm in an SRE team um, at a VoIP company, and yeah, it's. The the team's bigger than any I've worked on before um, in terms of how many people are on it, um, but actually the company's probably not as big as some of the others. So it's it's there's more than enough people to go around, put it that way. So yes, it's a, it's an interesting one, and yeah, it's the standard stuff. There's AWS for the cloud. We also use a lot of IBM stuff as well. Um, their soft layer side, and yeah, we're just doing a. A lot of interesting stuff in terms of um, VoIP and um, SMS and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, interesting stuff.
1: It's a a lot of stuff on the networking side because I know that's uh, your background in networking.
2: That, yeah, that there is a lot, lot on the networking side, but not in terms of managing the uh, network hardware because um, the IBM side, it's all managed for us. But we have to still do things like, you know, VPN management and all sorts of other things. And, you know, even though the network's abstracted away, there's still always stuff you can find out about the network at that point. So, yes, that's, um, that, there's always something, put it that way.
1: Cool. So what, what sort of tech, what's the main sort of tech you're using day to day?
2: It's mainly um, Terraform. We've talked a lot about it. That's, um, you know, big where we are as well. And um, th- there's lots of different solutions. There's, a be- there's Pure Bare Metal, um, uh, managed by um, Puppet. There's Virtual Machines, also managed by Puppet. But we also have HashiCorp's Nomad for containers.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Yes, but all but as a stepping stone to getting to Kubernetes, so it's just been used as a way of kind of testing the waters with containers, getting everything containerized, and then at some point the eventual aim is uh, Kubernetes. So yes, it's um, a, a lot of different technologies to learn, and um, yes, um, I, I think they're going to become a bit more focused over the next few years. But right now, there's quite a lot of different tooling to get to get my head around. Put it that way.
1: It sounds a bit similar to my new gig actually, where they're um, they're containerizing things. So they've got a sort of uh, legacy VM estate, and they're they're trying to get all their apps uh, refactored and rewritten, but also containerized. Uh, so they're using uh, Amazon ECS for that, which is yeah. interesting. Uh, not some that's not something I come across before. I think their end goal is to get to Kubernetes, uh, like like your your lot. Um, yeah but um ecs yes seem, seems seems uh, perfectly usable i'd i'd heard about it before but um uh, yeah it seems seems quite uh, i think it's the, f- the fargate uh, which I'm, i haven't i'm not too familiar with it i've only been used mm. there about a month but um i think without fargate you have to deal with bringing up all the instances to run the containers and so on um yeah. whereas with fargate it's it's more like just a, an api you can say bring up provide me some instances to run these containers on yeah uh, the place
2: i was working at not the last one but the one before that we were quite heavily on the ecs um side we were evaluating kubernetes but um never actually went there with a in um more than beyond proof of concept and yeah as you say the management of the different nodes connected to ECS we were doing the rather than the Fargate it was the EC2 side and uh, yes so yes I mean essentially it is managed Docker and yes it does do some things like you know say container go here container go there but um, yes it's I think now, um, especially seeing some of the people that work on it um, from the Amazon side, there's a lot of updates coming to ECS and a lot of things to make it almost Kubernetes-like if you want it to be. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, it can be quite basic as well at the same time. In just terms of right, I want something running there, um, and it doesn't do anything like automatic balancing or anything like you know automatically register with DNS that kind of thing. So yeah, but if you if you want simplicity in AWS when it comes to containers, ECS is definitely the way to go on that side.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it. It, it uh, from my experience of Kubernetes, it, it seems like it, it's. It's a lot simpler than that. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. But um, less obviously less functionality or or uh, kind of software written for it. Like um, you know, for instance, Kubernetes operators and so on.
2: Yeah. It's just little things like I've noticed in Kubernetes, like, you know, external DNS to automatically register, um, you know, DNS names, or um, there's the... Another one in AWS is the AWS ALB controller within Kubernetes that will automatically spin up a load balancer, Mm. So, you can expose something externally, um, AWS ingress controller. That's the one, sorry. Whereas, yeah, ECS, yes, you've got the native tools from AWS, but you don't have anything where you want to go write my DNS provider somewhere else. Well, you've got to manage that yourself as well, rather than the, uh, the pods within Kubernetes or at least, you know, another service doing it for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I found that a lot, there's a lot of, uh, lot of use of terraform or actually terragrunt which we might might talk about in a minute to actually o- orchestrate all the infrastructure um and and the containers and so on whereas if you if if and when they do get to kubernetes they they're, they're going to use terraform to bring up the cluster itself uh, and then pr- probably leave it alone from there and it's all going to be dealing with either you know, manifests or Helm charts and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. We should probably cover that in a future episode, actually, because I don't think we've really dug into dug into all that yet.
2: I'm more than up for that. I mean, we, we do a lot with um, Argo CD at the moment for the Kubernetes side and, yeah, just being able to update and manifest in a repository and know that it'll automatically go out if, if you specify that it will mm-hmm. and just know that, you know, you've got a new deployment based upon, you know, I've changed the image, I've changed the config map or something, and it automatically gets deployed out. Something like that's really, really mm. fun to see.
0: Yeah, yeah. Containers and dockers do sound really interesting. I haven't managed to play with anything, managed to. I was just renewing my Azure Administrator's um, qualification because Microsoft has changed it now that you have to, after two years, you have to do like an online exam, which is really fun because... They they say oh, you don't. It's basically not a, a proctor exam. but it's just like a, you can take it as many times as you like. Mm, and The questions they ask, they it's as typical Microsoft. you're like, thinking, which one is it? it, it there's two answers here. It could be correct. And um, reading up on it, like they recommend that you read their documentation. But I like, there was I can't. There's a couple of things which I need. I think it was like yeah, you can do, like with 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 the storage accounts you get with in Azure you can basically have them as a file share and at one point in time you couldn't access them um through the domain so like it's it you can actually join the the storage account to the to an app, to an active directory domain and then you can like use kerberos to access it and the and the question was like which of these features can you only use and like and it was not the answer because it was not, they were obviously basing these questions on the old documentation, not on the <laughs> yeah. what, what. I was like, oh. So I literally had to work out what was going through and just reading the questions and finding the documentation in like this training centre you can do. <laughs> so, but then I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but they had on Nate Night NX Extra, they had um, Martin Wimpress talking about Docker Slim, the new, the new gig he's working at, and that just sounds really interesting.
1: Yeah, I listened to that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it did sound interesting.
0: Because, like, I was reading, like, at the moment, we, we can go on to submit that we're running a number of web apps, obviously, in Azure, for my company. But I've had to start one of our customers. One, we've got a third party in doing some work. But they're doing all their stuff on PHP. And I've filled up a couple of Linux web apps for them. But we're having a bit of uh, performance issues with them. I'm going. I minute mean, we've probably bought this like first. But... Um, Reading up on how all that works, they are literally just Docker containers, which with 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 Apache kind of looks like it, and that's how they basically scale it out for you. Yeah. What i was gonna say? Is, what I was gonna to talk to about that. Like, how do you baseline stuff? Because we're getting to the stage where my job I'm kind of be getting more of the SRE stuff. Um. Now we've got everything in the cloud. We've kind of split our team up into two. We've got I'm managing kind of the DevOps people who are aligned to a domain team, and they are. They, they're they're in charge of with they're doing a migration from the, our current uh, CDI pipeline to uh, ADO. So they're working closely with them. But obviously, because I'm coming from an infrastructure background, uh, we're looking at uh, monitoring what we're doing because no one's really ever sort of like really monitoring it properly. Yeah. So obviously, I'm coming from a classic background of, of monitoring vms and stuff and obviously with your with your with your application monitoring, you can obviously monitor things like cpu memory iops etc etc services stopping starting whatever but when you come to doing PaaS, it's a different board game isn't it yes. so i'm just literally just started my journey this week of the start googling it and starting to think how we can do it like because obviously with like azure you get things like app insights so you can see the response times of queries and everything but it's just kind of we can pull things like memory and CPU and response time, but it's just kind of like knowing where to start, isn't it? I, w- I guess there's no, there's not really a... I was wondering if there's some sort of course or book you can get on because what a typical things you can kind of go down one path and then realise that actually you've gone down the wrong path completely and you need to start again kind of thing. So have you guys got any kind of tips? Because like this problem I've got at the moment is like, normally with the ASP, we, we've got the .NET stuff you have it scaled up, scale out, whereas that normally if you start seeing high CPU or memory usage, you kind of scale up the instances. But if you notice that obviously you've got load on it and you, you basically just have more instances, don't you? Because you know that those, those processes can handle that kind of thing. But like with this problem with this PHP issue I've got, is that we've got low CPU and low memory usage, but we're on a couple of pages. We're getting really long timeouts. but we think it's poorly written code or the way they're querying the database where they're like pulling loads of records back and that, the third party was saying oh just just throw more just throw resources at it <laughs> but my the, my the boss of the company or the it said no we can't just throw money at it because if you give, of course it's going to go faster if you give it 32 cpus and <laughs> yeah 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 where i am with, with it at the moment any recommendations or anything
2: yeah the, the, there's a couple of places with that i mean as you say some of the things like you know cpu and memory and um storage sometimes they tell you everything sometimes they don't tell you the full story at all and um one of the other things you got to bear in mind as well is um if you're coming from especially an on-prem environment where you are dealing with virtual machines and you don't often over provision it so you know a, a php application that's running on on linux you probably just go well we've got the resources let's throw you know four cores and um 16 gig of RAM just for this, whereas, you know, you move into the cloud, something like that is going to start costing you quite a lot of money a month because, you know, you've not paid for it up front or you're paying for is electricity when you're in the yeah, obviously there's other costs, you know, on prem, but for the most part you're paying for you're not you're not paying ongoing costs for having that instance. You're just yeah. paying for everything to keep it going. So you almost sometimes want there to be high CPU usage and memory on the instance to make sure that it's actually utilizing the resources that you provision for it. So it it, it can become a bit of a misnomer to say you know this is high cpu therefore it's a problem actually in something like you know we've talked about you know kubernetes already today but high cpu usage and memory as long as it's not going over thresholds that means that nothing else can actually work is actually what you're aiming for because you want to make the best use of the resources possible try and pack as much as you can in so yeah it's uh, and it's you know my current company has this i will not say an issue with it but because they've come from the old Nagy or Saisinga method of go something goes over a threshold, that's when you need to start looking at it. Actually, a lot of the times you're going, but what is the, what is the problem here? Um, and they just say, well, that, it's not actually sending anything down, but we have seen that it's using 80% of the memory. Uh, well, that's not actually an issue uh, because if it's doing what it's doing, that's it's not a problem. What, you, what you're probably actually going to find more useful here is that Well, there's a couple of things. One, I think we mentioned it in the past episode, was talking about um, tracing. So rather than monitoring, just trying to go off metrics, you're actually going off what the application is doing. So whether it's um, something like Honeycomb is an example of it. There's Jaeger, which is an open source version as well, but these essentially are sat inside the code or you know at least a sidecar that's running alongside the code not go right At this point, this code is doing this and it's taking this long. So you actually see the function that is um, taking the time. Or you'll see, oh, it's doing a database call and it takes three seconds to respond. That's where the problem is. Or it's things like that. So tracing might actually be the right way to go on things like that. The problem with that is, especially with any commercial solutions, is um, it can get quite expensive. Um, uh, So, yeah, whether that's the solution just for this is another matter entirely. Now, in terms of just if, if you've only really got access to metrics, there's something called the Golden Signals Method, um, which is rather than going on – I've got all all this correlation of um, you know CPU memory, it, as we were saying before. What you're actually looking at is um, just four parts of it, which is the latency, the amount of traffic, the amount of errors – and the saturation and saturation literally means how much of the resources are used up but that's you know at that point it's just one signal but the entire point there is it's more of a you're not you are not got so much metrics and monitoring that you can't actually make sense of what's going on you've just got these four signals that you look at and just go right which one is a problem here if it's latency it could be a network issue it could be it's so it's only a problem for people coming from the other side of the world, or the latency everywhere. At which point there's you know an issue with um, how it's responding. Errors there could be absolutely no errors, but it's just taking a long time, or there could be quite a high error rate, and that's why you've got problems. So, and yeah, it's it's something that um, Google themselves championed in. Um, I think they've championed it internally. But if you there's a book called the um, I think it's the SRE handbook or just called Google Site Reliability, Site Reliability Engineering Handbook. Um, they offer it for free online.
0: SRE.google.
2: Yes. And it's, yeah, just, just the monitoring section on that's probably worth it alone. But yeah, it's, um, it's a really good book on that one. And yes. The, the, the classic thing people will say is, you know, not everyone's the scale of Google, so you don't need to use the same kind of tooling and same kind of approach but it's a good place to start in terms of yeah rather than get you know lost in a sea of metrics just go for the main ones that tell you whether an app is working or not and they can often then point to where you need to look so as i say you know if the saturation's up at that point you know actually i'm resource contended or the errors are up well actually trying to talk to something and it's not getting a response therefore you know um, you know the database isn't coming back in time so therefore it is timing out or um you know it's the cl- you know we get a huge amount of 400s or something like that well actually it's the clients that are looking at the run endpoint you know that kind of thing so they're they're a good place to start anyway at that point
0: yes yeah, definitely i think that i think it's the way you say you need to start looking at this tracing thing where you've got a bit and everything but the thing but i think we've got over like 200 microservices in our yeah. system so, so and now we're over like five different teams so we've got different teams doing different things <laughs> yeah, it's just like, uh, and no yeah and yeah it's just like scary isn't
2: it yeah I mean, I mean that that's exactly the point of tracing as well if you've got that many different services that could something could be passing through um, tracing is where it would then correlate it's hit the service then it's hit the service then it's hit the service therefore I can see the entire path rather than well I know it's getting to here then the next part well it's going off to a different team and I don't know what theirs is doing so I've got to talk to them and yeah, as I say it because of microservices and containers and things like that is exactly why things like tracing are now become, becoming you know at the forefront of um, trying to work out what's going on with an app rather than just I can just look at the logs on the box um, well it's now across 200 boxes <laughs> have fun with that
0: and even you say if you get to kind of like the kubernetes thing as well isn't it it's not like you can point it to a, from from the to a vm either is it kind of thing because you could have a couple of nodes where whatever they call them in the thing could be called to, which could have a random name couldn't they
2: oh yeah ex- exactly and yeah you know especially we got i mean aws it's uh, um auto scaling groups um i can't remember the name in um azure and uh, GCP and the similar ones, but you know, you could have a node that comes up purely to take traffic while the traffic load is higher. And then once the traffic load is lower, um, it, it deletes that node. It's um, yeah. part of what's it called now? The cluster auto scaler within Kubernetes does exactly that. It will go, right. I'm reaching contention on here, or, you know, we've had to spin up this many pods. Therefore we need to spin up the nodes, take them. And then now that the traffic load has gone down, remove the amount of containers, at which point we don't need the nodes to get rid of the nodes, at which point you can't log on to find, find the information anymore. So, yeah, as I say, exactly why you need something like tracing for something you know, something that complex. It, it's really hard to get through it without something like that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge at my current place. We don't have anything for tracing, but at least we've got distributed logging and we've got a lot of metrics. We can at least make sense of it for the most part. But, yeah, we're a little lacking on the tracing side ourselves.
1: Yeah, I mean I think another thing as well is uh, metrics are um, more important these days than actually monitoring the the boxes themselves if you're still on VMs. Um you still obviously got to monitor those basic uh OS level metrics like disk space and so on. But what you're probably going to be concentrating on more is metrics that the app, the app is, is is throwing out. Um and for that you Usually, the other sort of industry standard these days is Prometheus. I would say that way you you, you effectively install a Prometheus uh, no It's called Node Exporter. It's effectively a client um, which presents uh, an endpoint that the Prometheus server can poll uh, or scrape, as as it's called in Prometheus, uh, and then. You get your metrics back, and you you it uh, gets put into Prometheus's time series database, so that you can find out when things happened and uh, and what what exactly the metric was at that at that point in time.
2: Yeah, uh, and the important thing there is because of. Prometheus's format of metrics. It's not something that's proprietary. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They are standardizing on something called Open Metrics, which is essentially the Prometheus format. So if you looked at a Prometheus endpoint like Node Exporter and you just went to the port for that and slash, forward slash metrics, you would see something like. An example would be node underscore uname underscore info and then curly brackets. And then it's got what's called labels in there. So you can say, you know, what the kernel level is, what all this kind of thing. And then, you know, you'd end up with the integer at the end to say what the actual result of the metric is. And you get that for lots of other things like CPU and that. But the point there is, because it's not proprietary, the applications themselves can expose metrics. So they can say how many times something has hit this function or how many times um, something's hit it at all. Because all it is, is uh, Prometheus just cares that there's an endpoint and that the metrics are in the format that it finds. It doesn't actually... It's not going, I need to find these metrics. It's just going... Anything that I find at this endpoint, I will um, scrape and put into the time series database. Um, I mean, a good example is recently I've built a couple of them at my current workplace. And it just means that, you know, there's certain metrics that we couldn't find in, in other ways. So we just I just went, right, I'll build that. And now we uh, pull them into the time series database and use them for other stuff. So it means that, and yeah, I suppose this is a point as well, because... What you're wanting to get is application metrics. It's going to take a lot of working with the teams that build the applications to expose the metrics for them. And you know, in in some ways, they can. Certain languages have sdks for prometheus at which point if you enable them they automatically expose some metrics to begin with just things like um how long it took the um, application to start up and things like that now if you want anything more than that then you can um create your own metrics at there and expose it on the same endpoint, and then it's quite easy to um scrape at that point as well
1: so um Next on our on our docket here is uh, something about e- eBPF which I believe is also related to monitoring. So
2: eBPF is it's kind of related to monitoring in in how you can use it. Um so very sh- kind of high level overview of what eBPF is is um in Linux you've got two parts to it. You've got the kernel, which is where the bit that interfaces the um, hardware and basically does everything on um, the machine. So whether it's talking to the network, whether it's talking to the storage, that's the bit that does it. And then you have something called user space, which is where where the people or the applications interact with. And then they make um, what's called a system call from user space to the kernel to say, I want you to do this. Please do it. And then the kernel will respond and just say, I did this, here is the result. So something as simple as I want to list a directory actually sends quite a few different system calls back to the kernel to list what's in a directory and then send the results back. Now, what eBPF does is you can create your own, um, what they call eBPF programs. And they are little little things uh, written in C most of the time. And you basically create a little program that will intercept some of these calls. So you can see from the kernel level how many times a process has started, how many times it's tried to open a TCP port, how many times uh, a packet's gone through the kernel at that point. And the point is because it's sitting at the kernel level, you're not having to deal with the time that it takes to go from user space into the kernel. The point is anything that's already at the kernel level is faster than some trying to talk to the kernel to get the answers. It's actually sat inside the kernel. But it means you can customize something to do that. Now, what you can then do with it is, it because it's intercepting what's happening at the kernel, it can then respond and say, right, this is how many times something happened, and you can then take that data and expose it somewhere. So, a good, as I say, you know, if you wanted to say how many different processes started and who and um, what were the users and groups that started them, um, you could have something sat at the kernel it can see every single one that's tried it and then it responds back and now you've got the information you can just say right this is I've got now a count of how many times cat was used I've got how many times top was used or I've got how many times nginx was trying to do something and that kind of thing. so and it's getting very big And I mean, Kubernetes, it's it's going quite big into, but just anywhere right now, because it's now giving you insights into what the kernel is doing from the same level as the kernel, rather than having to find some way of the kernel exposing it somewhere else, or someone's already written something for it. You can actually write your own little programs that sit alongside the kernel and tell you what you want to know about it.
1: I don't know about anyone else, but I, I'm not much of a C programmer. So, are they are these uh, sort of little programs? Are they available? Has 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 someone else done done that hard work for us? Uh, and can you kind of just drop them in?
2: Uh, in some ways, yes. There is something called BPF trace, which is essentially command line utility. Which um, it's got a few um, arguments to it. But at that point, it sits in the kernel and you just say, you know, I want to see how many times a packet has gone into the kernel and it will tell you that. Um, someone's done or already done that. Um, Brendan Gregg, who's now part of Netflix, who's done a lot of the Linux performance blogs, if if you search for Linux performance, his stuff will come out as the top result in Google. He's been heavily involved with this one and he's also had a quite, um, invo- quite a lot of involvement in getting these tools to come to fruition. But also there's a lot of different libraries that you can use and there's there's a lot of example code out there that you can use but if you fancy having to try try doing it yourself it's also possible to do it It, there's all sorts of different levels um to go with so as i say bpf trace is the absolute basic um of a tool that already does it for you there's lots of examples for how to use um but then you can go up to right using something else where it kind of You say you want something that does this, and then it will generate the code for you. Or you then actually write some of the BPF programs yourself. Um, That's something I've been trying myself recently. Up until about a month or two ago, I'd never written any C before in my life. And I am copying and pasting quite a lot from existing ones, but it's actually not as hard as I thought it was going to be. Um, So weirdly... I think because of the, where Go came from, and I've been getting quite heavily into Go recently, a lot of the stuff is similar. So it uses very similar ways of referring to variables. It uses things like um, structs, which aren't in things like Python, or at least, you know, they're not exposed in the same way. But a struct is essentially your own t- kind of variable with different fields in it. In C, they look very similar to the way they are doing Go. So for me, it's been not a huge transition to start learning it. The other part about it is that the little programs that you're writing, it's not full C. It's just kind of a stripped down version because there's some things that you're not allowed to do. So you can't do, I believe it's, you can't do any loops or anything like that. So the information that you need can only be this comes in and send it back. You can't then go, right go through it and then for every time start doing a loop for it because at that point you potentially get into a point where you're looping constantly actually break the kernel so they just don't allow loops whatsoever um and there's a there's a few other things that are restricted as well but as i say it's something as something just like you know how many processes have started actually isn't that difficult to do um it's i've the one that i wrote was about 40 lines of code, and most of it was co- uh, was more or less the same. It was just this variable that comes back, you know, the user ID, read that from the kernel when this comes in, and then send it back to the program that's calling it. And the same with everything else. Um, so, you know, user ID, group ID, um, what process is calling it, that kind of thing. And then you can interact with that program um, that you've put into the kernel um, with right now, as far as I'm aware, the ones that you can use are C itself, Python, Go, and Rust, are the ones that have uh, native um, support for talking to eBPF um, programs, and also they can be used to load the programs into the kernel in the first place. Um, and, yeah, as I say, because I'm getting quite heavily into go in the past year or so, um, that's what I've been using to do it. And most of the complexity is actually in reading the data that comes back because sometimes it's a sort of format you don't expect, even though you wrote it, it still comes back, you know, slightly different from what you expected because there's a bit of a translation going on. But as I say, because it's sat alongside the kernel, um, you're getting kind of insights that you never would before. And that's exactly why it's getting popular, because now you're able to see at the kernel level how is something um working.
1: So is that is that is that going to a um like a Prometheus exporter then to in order to to get it into sort of human readable form?
2: You can do that. So it's one of the things I've actually been playing about with today is taking the output back from um the ebbf program and then turning it into an exporter itself or you can just print it out to the command line you can use it just as a generic tracing thing to say right i want to see what's happening and just print it out um, because what's coming back are you know the variables and you just use them for whatever you want so you know it's it's sending back the name of the process it's sending back the username it's sending back things like that so you just go right I see these i'm just pr- going to print print them out to the terminal so i can watch it or you can turn it into an exporter so that you can um, consume it however you want at that point. One of the other things it's actually becoming useful for as well is networking because it runs at line rate rather than having to do any kind of translation of taking a packet, um, passing through the kernel up to the user space and then being dealt with and then being passed back down. Because it's at the kernel level, it runs as fast as the kernel does. So it means that um, you can manipulate packets that come through the same way uh, the kernel does. Um, And one of the big things I've seen it used for is um, DDoS mitigation. So you can say, these IPs, I want them blocked before it even gets any further into the box. And because it's done at the kernel, before it goes past into user space, the load that it generates is, is absolutely minimal compared to actually taking the packet that's bad and then taking it to the user to say, right, I want to drop that with IP tables because it's happening before that and before it goes for any of the translation to get it to the user, it's so much quicker. Um, And there's a few companies using it for DDoS mitigation already and finding it, you know, being able to use commodity Linux boxes rather than having to buy, you know, big DDoS appliances and it's actually working faster and means they can scale out quite quickly as well because, Take another Supermicro, Dell, HP, whatever server, and there you go. You've got another DDoS mitigation box. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting technology. But, yes, as I say, having not seen C up until two months ago in terms of writing it, it's very different, but also very familiar at the same time.
0: So what are you using it for, sorry? What, what's your use case for it? Uh, partly
2: at the moment, curiosity, but um, one of the things that triggered it was we, it's just a recent um, instance of seeing things where um, a web server can't keep up with traffic, or Nginx is doing something, it's not quite doing it right, or Apache isn't quite doing the things you would expect it to do when packets come in. And you can do a packet capture, but the packet capture only shows you what happened when the packet was processed by the application, it doesn't show you what happened to process the packet. And that's you know the kind of thing that you would be able to do with this because you can literally see when this packet comes in, what is that triggering in the process to do so? And then you might be able to see, actually, there's a problem here. Or actually, it's gone through all of this, and it's actually the application that's at fault. So it's 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 almost like the most low-level tracing you can get because it's at the point where... You're not doing any translation to any applications. It's literally what the kernel sees is what you get.
0: Interesting. And like, I was just going back to what we said before, you just say about Nginx and Apache. I think half probably my PHP issue I've got is that it's uh, we're currently running this application running on PHP version 7. We're in the process of putting PHP, PHP version 8. With 7 in the Linux platform, um, it's running Apache, but when you're running Persian Eight, it's running Nginx. So I'm just hoping that when we go to Nginx, it's going to work. It's going to perform a lot better than it is compared. Because I always remember having my first VPS. I had on Apache, and it's just like dog slow. And then you use Nginx, it's just so much quicker, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I know some of improvements have come with Apache over the past few years to try and deal with that one. But yeah, in my experience, Nginx is usually a bit faster on that side as well. So yeah, wouldn't surprise me if that actually improves things. Yeah. See, when you say it's a Apache and a PHP, is that what you are providing that you just essentially run the code in or are you actually managing the box at that point?
0: No, so that's at, that's platform as a service. So they give you, you basically have your code, you upload it into their Right. And then you do it, and it runs and in a little container, looks like it. And there's a lot that you can do because this application, is, that's like Laravel, where you have... all right, right. Yeah. yeah, like, so, like, it's... So, you know, like, have, like, like, some PHP applications have, like, a forward slash public folder, don't they? Yes. And there's no easy way in... The, in the wind, in the Linux, in, the, in this Windows Azure application, to redirect it to that, like if it's not, if it's like you could uh, modify the config file and turn it to look at it, you can't do that. Uh, so I had to read a uh, red check so that when it hits it, uh, the, the HT access redirected to the right public folder.
2: <laughs> oh dear!
0: Yeah, and that's going to be on every single request because. But now with engine with with version eight with PHP and the engine Ngin- when you deploy the code, you can basically um, have the engine X config. And in that engine Ngin- X config, you can basically tell it what the path is. Of right. this, and so, yeah, it's so much. Ado. So I was hoping, uh, I'm just, it, you, just, you know when you're dealing with third parties whatever it's just like that kind of thing no it's not it's a network no it's not and like you just want to say let's well, yeah. get to the bottom of it so um, we've got it work the problem is that in production it's having a problem but not in the lower environment but we think it's because the databases aren't um haven't got as much data as they want so i'm just going to try and see if i can get the databases restored into lower environments and once i've done that i can replicate it i know that in this phase two of the project that I'm gonna I wanna see if I can get it into our dev, then I know I can run the same query or what's causing stoners and then see if it, it fixes it. So yeah, it's all interesting and learning and stuff.
2: So sounds like a fun one. And
0: <laughs> so I think um, you had something you wanna to, want to speak you, you were t- um, Jerry, which sounds quite interesting. This um I can't call this terror something you were talking about.
1: So this is uh, this uh, part of my my new gig I mentioned earlier, um, using this um, bit of software called TerraGrunt. So what this is is a, a thin wrapper around uh, Terraform, which we've spoken about um, many many in, times <laughs> in previous episodes. Yeah, um, <clears throat> the main I think the main aim of it is to make Terraform uh, dry, as it's called, so which stands for don't repeat yourself. So it. You, you you might have come across a Terraform code base where uh, you, you have to duplicate a lot of stuff in, in different modules. Um, what, what they're using it for uh, at the, the place I'm working is to basically tie Terraform modules together. So to to, to backtrack a bit, um, a Terraform module is a bit of reusable Terraform code. Um, you provide in, input vari- inputs either as variables or just as values. Um there's a lo- there's a load of Terraform code which that that works on, creates infrastructure, whatever, and it can optionally produce outputs. So TerraGrunt can can take a module, um, give it input values uh to to the module within the TerraGrunt file, and then it can take the outputs of other modules and as as dependencies, so the dependencies are defined in that same file, um, just as a, a, a separate directory somewhere else, usually. Um, but I think you can you can refer to them at, uh, on on GitHub and so on as well. And yet, yeah, it, it, it ties the modules together in that way. So, and it'll produce a nice uh, a diagram for you as well if you ask it to uh, uh, the graph dependencies command. And so if, if you give it a load of Terraform, if you give it a load of config, it, it will do things like it will know which bit of Terraform to run first, or which Terraform module to run first, because it, it knows the dependencies between them. The other thing that I've been doing, I've been refactoring this code, um, is to set high-level variables. So so in my case, I'm working on a, a service, or a microservice, uh, and that has a particular name, and it runs on on a particular port. So I found that there was this name and port value were um, hard coded in each of these uh, in each each of these TerraGrunt config files. Obviously, that's an example of repetition. So that can be you can parameterize that value uh, and just tell TerraGrunt to to. Refer to another file which contains those values, a bit like Helm in Kubernetes. If anyone's, if anyone's used that, yeah,
2: the the whole values file and then the chart file and then yeah, yeah.
1: So you can set these, you can set these variables at a high level uh, and have have them fed into all the, all these modules automatically. So I've done a lot, yeah, I've done a lot of refactoring work in the last few weeks to to do that. Um, and that's basically how I how I've learned Terraform. That's 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 all I've really used it for at the moment. I think it can do more stuff. Uh, I know you've used it, Sue. Um, yeah. I'm not, not sure if you used any other parts of it, but yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a kind of nice nice wrapper around Terraform. Once you get your head around what it's doing, it's really useful.
2: Yes, I suppose one of the things to point out as well is the entire reason for um, potentially having things in separate folders. I think we may have mentioned it before, but one of the problems you find with Terraform is because it's trying to um, just look in a directory and then either plan or apply what you're asking for in that directory, the bigger that directory gets, the more it has to evaluate whether what you want is the way that... um, I don't know, AWS as your GCP, whatever you're trying to do, is that the state that it's in right now, and if not, what needs to change? And the more resources that it needs to manage, the longer that time takes because it's got to do API calls for every single bit. So, you know, you start off the first days of using Terraform, you'll probably just go, right, I can do everything in the same directory. I just need to spin up a virtual machine, a firewall in front of it, and um, a DNS record. Do that once it's fine that you get to the hundredth one of them it takes 100 times as long as it did the first one the entire point in terragrunt is it can you can potentially have say a, a potentially good way of using it is to have slack so kind of like a core folder so that would be your core networking your core um, dns um, locations um, your core variables and then in a in another folder you could just say right when i run this i want to apply these changes it also may need to apply changes in the core module or the other way around. It could be any time you want to apply something into the core module to say we're we're changing what we're doing for subnets or we're changing the domain. These things depend on this so I also need to go and change them rather than being in a state where you've changed it in one place. But not everywhere else is changed, at which point things might actually fail at that point because Um, You know, they're referring to a different DNS domain that doesn't exist anymore or things like that. So, yeah, it's one of the reasons I looked at Terragrunt a couple of years ago um, was just to deal with the whole having things in separate directories while also not losing the ability to make make the state changes all at once that are required. But also, you know, limiting down how much um, blast radius, you know, making a, you know, if, if you do the whole terraform destroy command somewhere, if you do it in a core directory or directory of everything, in, you've just lost everything if you click a yes on that one. Whereas if you do it yeah. in a separate folder, you've only lost what's in that folder, thankfully.
1: And um, the folder structure that we're using is, um, you know, so you have an a environment a region, uh, AWS region, uh, and then your your code. So it's quite um, apparent where y- where you are, and if if you do do a destroy, what you are, you're actually going to destroy. Yeah. So it's quite useful in that sense. And the other thing you can do with that is you can set these, you can stick these um, uh, Terragrunt files. Uh, uh, I think they've got an HCL extension by 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 convention, um, and then so in in your region you have a region HCL. Um, Uh, which has the the variables which are uh, used for that region Uh, you know in the the environment you can have the variables that use for that environment so it 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 does make a lot make things make a lot more sense in terraform i've found because you're not searching around for uh, these values and there's one place to set them all and you just have to make sure that the terragrunt config further down knows to go and Read those files. It has a function called finding parent folders, which is really handy. So you can say, for a, for a config at, at the end of the the, fi- the file tree, if you like, go and look for this file um, which has all the inv- the variables for this region um, in a parent directory. Uh, the first one you find, that's that's the one you need. Uh, and yeah just use that so yeah it's really quite really quite handy once you get your head around it what, what it's actually doing it's it's uh, quite handy the other thing uh, i've heard is that it can the latest version w- will run things concurrently so if if a dependence if it doesn't have if something have has a dependency if something doesn't have a dependency on something else um you might have three modules that can be run at the same time so it can do all that at the same time, make all those API calls at the same time uh, and bring your infrastructure up quicker in that way.
2: Yeah, Yeah. makes sense. Yeah, one of the other things um, you can also do with uh, um, Terraform as the uh, provider's. Um, which is the way that it interacts with a cloud. So you'd have a provider for AWS, a provider for DigitalOcean, provider for um, MySQL, that kind of thing. Um, you can set something like a default provider that's used across all the infrastructure in that region or all, all of your infrastructure in total. So at that point, you're not going into a folder and just going, right, this uses this version of the AWS provider and this uses this version of the AWS provider. And then obviously, you get out a step of what's supported and what's not. You can say, right the provider config is actually done by Terragrunt, which point you don't have to worry about it in the files you're creating, but it also means that, um, yeah, you've got consistency in what's actually been used at that point as well.
1: I think it can do the same thing for state as well. So it has its own kind of state block where you can set the state for for every single uh, module in that way. So yes, yeah, handy handy bit of uh, bit of
0: software, definitely. Yes. Yeah. yeah, sounds really interesting. Might have to look at that. I haven't got use case at the moment, but like it's one I think I probably find about a month later or two. They go, oh, I know what I can use. Cause that. like, yeah. it's like, I think you were talking about, um, about Terraform workspaces where you can like have workspaces in your environment. And one of the guys implemented it at work, for one of our projects It's like really cool how you can just go between the different, you can switch between the workspaces. Mm.
1: Yeah. They use that for different environments in my last place. Yeah. Um, a workspace just to to sort of uh, fill up, fill that in is a, a basically a different state uh, or state file or set of state files, um, uh, which Terraform refers to 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 find out what like as Stu was saying earlier, what's actually sitting there and what changes it needs to make.
0: And the output thing as well. I've found the purpose now as well. I build. Loads <laughs> <Right. of laughs> it's like when I can do an output now when it builds name of the VM I created, it can output the VM, so I can literally just copy and paste it into my RDP session.
1: <laughs> That's actually really important in TerraGrunt because, as, as, as I was saying, you can take you, you can take the outputs uh, and feed them straight into another module um, by using this dependency sort of framework.
0: Yeah. Cool. Okay. okay. I think we might be nearly up for an hour, so we might as well wrap it up. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention as well. Um, The Ship at DevOps podcast, which you recommended, Stu, it's really good. I'm really enjoying that.
2: Yes, I've been listening to a few of them recently, and they've got some of the interviews on from um, KubeCon. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, one of them, I should have mentioned it during the EBPF bit, but there's uh, an interview with someone called Liz Rice, and she is very big in the EBPF community. If anyone's wanting to look into eBPF, search for her videos on YouTube and her repositories. She makes it almost seem easy to start C, which, you know, I never thought that never thought that would happen in a, in a month or some days. But, uh, yeah, her tutorials on eBPF is exactly what got me
1: started on.
0: Yeah, that's it? a really good interview they did with her. Yes. So.
1: No not another podcast I need <laughs> to listen to. I, I haven't got enough time in the day. I I listen to more now. I listen because I didn't used to listen to them during the day. It was just on my commute, and and I'm still I'm still not listening to to uh, to all the podcasts. So I'm getting a, a growing backlog. Um, on that subject, though, I, I I did find one. It's quite a, a short one called Rent Rent Build Buy. I don't know if anyone's come across that. I don't think I have. No. Um, so it's what it basically what it sounds like. Do you do you rent the thing or examples of they that so they pick a topic like uh, monitoring or uh, I think they've done one on and uh, that they would say, do you, re- do you rent it? i.e. do you pay it, so a cloud provider or, or service prov- provider for it? Do you build it yourself or do you buy it uh, and buy it Sort of the on prem version. And yeah, it's it's quite good. Uh, I think they're I can't remember the name of the company, um, but it's it's like a, this company does this podcast. Mm. So, uh, but it's yes, yeah, it's, it's good listening it rent it's for, buy, rent build buy. Mm.
0: And there's one podcast I also want to do is my Nad Polo month this month in November, which I'm releasing, which I'm doing, which I'm releasing a um, podcast every day. It's basically just my, my coding journey. So, they're a little five minute snippets every day I'm doing. It's called the Code Snippet Podcast. So, just go to the code snippet podcast podcast.com.
2: Yeah, I've, I've been listening to that and it's been uh, really interesting so far. I'll cool, thank say, you. i enjoying it.
1: <laughs> I need to listen to that, but uh, my podcast backlog isn't letting
0: me. <laughs> <you guys. laughs> yeah, just want to thank Dave again for our audio production because uh, we're also a proud member of the Other Side Podcast Network. So see Other Side Network for the more detailed other podcasts we have on there. Yeah, if you want to get any feedback to us, just click the mail at We haven't had much feedback lately, have we? So um, uh, maybe drop us a mail. And then obviously join our Telegram group where we have quite good discussions about things.
1: I'd like to thank our Patreons who are Andamo, Andy, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu. Thanks, you right. uh, and <laughs> Stuart and Yannick. Uh, thanks, guys. That's uh, awesome.
2: And uh, if you've got any, any questions you want us to answer, anything you want to um, talk to us about, anything mentioned on the podcast, want to tell us we're wrong, tell us we're right, whichever you want to do, contact us by email or in the Telegram group, and um, we'll try to answer one of the next shows.
0: Well, yeah, it'd be quite good because we can get uh, we'll get John texting us in Something <laughs> wrong. that's how he came on the, on the original podcast me, I don't know, well, we, something we've marked up completely hadn't we Gary he did come on and told him, yeah
1: <laughs> I'm sure he'll, he'll uh, add, add in uh, some addenda, addenda episode
2: <laughs> yeah but we'll, we'll get a f- five minute recording of just ignore this bit redo this bit
1: <laughs> 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 And maybe he's still going to do our show notes. <laughs> yeah, no. you never know.
0: <laughs> all right, guys, a nice chat to you, and we'll speak to you all soon. Bye for now. Bye bye.
1: Cheers. Bye.
0: you've been listening to a member of the other side podcast network find more about our shows
2: at otherside.network